0: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's a real privilege to be here. I uh, would reciprocate a lot of what Matt said. I count it an honor and a joy. Anytime I get to be here, I get to see old faces. Um, And particularly this year, because it's been a hard hard couple of years. Amen? And some of you maybe cruised through the last two years. I think most of us are walking with a bit of a limp. There's been obviously the pandemic and for some of you that meant change in employment or unemployment there's been a lot of political stuff obviously in the air and division maybe your conversations with family at thanksgiving were a little more tense or maybe they didn't even happen maybe it was hard for you to gather with members of your family this year i just i think about our society right now and it just kind of feels like our world is shaking in a lot of ways uh People are uneasy. They're angry. Just yesterday, I was watching two guys yell at each other. I'm like, "Can we calm down, please? It's Christmas time. Like, can we can we tone it down a little bit here? Let's not argue over skyline. There's plenty of chili to go around. You know, uh, they never run out. But this season of Advent is another reason I'm grateful to be here. Um, you know, I don't think I really understood the meaning of Advent until we planted. This church. Until that time, I'd always viewed Advent as just kind of the, the warm-up to Christmas, right? It's the, the warm-up band that's getting you ready for the day when we celebrate God with us, which is the inspiration for this series. But what I've learned is that for the majority of church history, for about 1,700 years, Christians have set aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas as a time to grow in learning how to wait on the Lord, learning how to anticipate, and deepen our longing for him to come through on his promises. Advent isn't just about the fact that God has come in Jesus Christ. Advent's ultimately a season where we train our eyes and our hope on the fact that he's coming again. And in his second coming, he's going to deal with all of the darkness and the division, the brokenness, He's going to put an end to disease and decay. He's going to put death itself to death, and then he's going to wipe away every tear. That is our hope as Christians, and the church has recognized for a long time. We need to keep that fire, the flame of that hope, we need to keep that tended to. We need to keep that alive. Otherwise, it's easy to be overcome with despair in this world. And so Advent, interestingly enough, it's... It's not really a sentimental season. Advent is actually a season in which we as Christians, we stare at the darkness in our world and in our lives. We stare it in the face as we learn to train our longings and desires on the day when Christ will return. It's not sentimental. It's not chestnuts roasting on an open fire. It's, O oh, come, O oh, come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel. It set us free. It's please, God, do something about this world. And this text we're looking at this morning, I think it's one of the best texts that teach us about how to navigate the season of Advent well, about how to wait and hope, how to anticipate and hope, but also with honesty, I think too often in the church, we struggle to be honest. I think sometimes we're afraid that to be honest maybe is a mark of unfaithfulness when what we actually see in the Bible, and one of the things that I love about the Bible, is it's the most honest book that's ever existed. When you read the Bible, it's filled with a whole lot of honesty about the darkness of our world and our lives. And so we're going to consider this very famous passage in light of its historical context, and we're going to explore two promises that were given in this passage. One of them is a hard promise and one of them is a great promise. And then we're going to talk about how we hold both of those promises together. The promise, the first promise we're going to look at that we see in this text is the promise of deep darkness that Isaiah gives to God's people. You know, the seven verses, as you read them, they're filled with these wonderful promises, but when you keep it in context, the actual Context in which Isaiah gave this prophecy was pretty bleak. Isaiah was a prophet speaking on behalf of God. And if you've ever read Isaiah, if you read Isaiah chapters 1 to 8 before you get to this passage, it's pretty intense. Like there's some pretty intense, pretty hard stuff in there. And the reason why is Isaiah, he lived about 250 years after David's reign. And over the course of that 250 years, you know, God had promised to build this nation, and there were certain kings. And while there were a couple of kings who were decent, most of the kings who followed after David were wicked men. And they were entrusted by God to rule over his nation, and yet they were selfish. They flaunted God's laws and his commands, they took advantage of Orphans and widows and the poor, they neglected to care for the least of these, and they made unholy alliances with foreign nations. And so God had said, I'm going to protect you. And they're like, yeah, 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 but as insurance, it might be good if we had a deal with the Assyrians. And so they kept breaking God's law. God's kept sending promises or prophets again and again, warning them like, hey, you're wandering, you're straying. You're not living a life of trust and faith in me. And if you keep doing this, judgment's going to come. Well, eventually, judgment came. The warnings went unheeded, and so God sends Isaiah to speak on his behalf and tell his people that because of their stubborn and persistent rebellion, he's going to hand them over to their enemies. That's what the prophet's doing here. I mean, there's good news, don't worry, but before we get there, there's really hard news that Isaiah is delivering. You're going to be handed over to your enemies. And we actually see it in the very first word in chapter 9. It's the word nevertheless. Nevertheless. Well, nevertheless what? Where is that coming from? you got to go back to chapter 8. And at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah describes what the day is going to look like when God hands his people over to their enemies. And really what happens is the Assyrians break in They capture all of Israel, and they take them away, take them out of the land to Assyria. And here in Isaiah 8, he gives us a picture of what that's going to look like. He says they will pass through the land. It's the Israelites, God's people. They're going to pass through the promised land. They're not going to stay here. They're going to be distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their god and they will turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's how chapter 8 of Isaiah ends. It's intense. It's a foreboding prophecy. Things are going to get really, really bad. Essentially what Isaiah is saying is, God is going to turn out the lights on this nation. And it's going to be really hard. Now this teaches us something about hope, believe it or not. Because when you study hope in the Bible, especially in the prophets, you'll find that hope is almost always held in tension with God's judgment. Like I said, if you read Isaiah, you'll find there's a lot of really hard passages that you know, maybe, maybe you're fascinated by or maybe you like to skim over those ones and go to the, the better passages. But when you read it as a whole, hope is always held in contrast with judgment because biblical hope is not the same thing as optimism. Optimism is you, you look at Uh, a set of circumstances and some some data, and you see this is the way all of this could work out best, and I'm going to choose to believe that it's going to work out this way. The Bible doesn't tell us to live like that. The Bible actually enables us to stare and look at society or the world or our own lives and say, man, there's a lot of darkness there. There's a lot of hard stuff there. And I don't know if this is going to turn out great in this moment, in this time. Darkness. I mean, think about the Old Testament if you've read it. Is the Old Testament filled with mainly encouraging and hopeful stories or a lot of dark stories when you think about humanity? It's not a real, like, commendation on the human race when you read the Old Testament. There's wonderful stories, and there are some wonderful people, but as a whole, the Old Testament is filled with so much darkness. I saw... A young atheist on social media, who I guess, apparently, instead of just bashing the Bible, decided to read it, and they posted, like, have any of you all actually read the Bible? It's it's filled with so much violence and ugliness and wars and genocide. It's so dark. And I so wanted to respond, but I don't, because I don't engage in social media in that way. But I so wanted to respond, have you studied human history? It's filled with so much violence and wars and darkness and genocide and oppression and slavery and wickedness. You know, the last century were by, was by far the bloodiest century in human history, and it's not even close. Tyrants and dictators, one after the other Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Hussein, just to name some of the highlights. You see, this is what I love about the Bible, but it's actually a bit unsettling oftentimes for religious people. What I love about the Bible is that it's honest about the human condition. It's honest about the darkness. And I actually think that's one reason people struggle with the Bible, is it's too honest and it's too human. Not only is it honest, it explains the darkness, that God created us to be in relationship with him And instead of wanting to live under his rule and his reign, we sought to put ourselves in his place, which, of course, is going to create chaos. I heard someone once describe it. If you think of our our solar system, imagine if all of the planets in our solar system which revolve around the sun said, you know what? I want to be the sun. Why does he get to be the sun? I think I could run this place better than him. Well, imagine what would happen. You'd have planets start colliding into each other. You'd have chaos. You'd have brokenness. In the same way, that's us as human beings. In the Bible, it gives us categories to make sense of the darkness. Just thinking of the last couple of months, the school shootings, or a guy who gets in an SUV and runs over little kids at a Christmas parade. How do we hold that? Well, if you believe people are generally good and the world's generally a good place, those are confounding. If you actually read the Bible, you realize that's what people do apart from God. See, as we learn to wait and hope, which is the whole goal of Advent, we have to recognize that, that hope doesn't require us to bury our heads in the sand. It doesn't require us to deny the darkness in our world and in our lives. And that's why many of the songs that you sing during Advent are moody and contemplative. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of them, they're like in a minor key because Advent speaks to the minor key of life that most of us live in. And I know some of you, you're like, man, I was really positive. We've had great time leading up to Christmas, come to church. I apologize. But I also know a lot of you are like, amen, right now. You're like, yep, I've been feeling that. And I think like one of the tragedies of the modern church is we come to Christmas time and we think it's supposed to be this season filled with all this joy and happiness and hope and gee, I hope it is for you, but I also, for a lot of us, it's not, right? It's another year gone by. Maybe there's drama in your immediate family or your marriage. Maybe it's kind of lamenting what your family is or lamenting what your family never was. But biblical hope, it doesn't require us to deny these things. And so I just wonder, what's the pain and darkness in your life that you're trying to avoid, that you try to bury? What's the loss? What's the hard stuff that you don't even quite know how to pray about anymore or maybe you've quit praying about? God's Word gives us permission to be honest about the dark. I want to say, if you're not overflowing with joy right now, if Christmas is coming up and you're feeling like, I'm not all in the Christmas spirit of joy and happiness, that's okay, there's room for that. God creates space for that. Advent creates space for that. So, Isaiah, wonderful prophecy, starts saying, deep darkness is coming on us. And then... The second promise he makes, thankfully, he doesn't stop there. The second promise he makes is, he says, even though it's going to be dark, there's going to be a light that's going to dawn in the midst of the darkness. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that you're going to be taken prisoner and taken out of your land and leave your home for good and never see it again, nevertheless... has dawned. What Isaiah is saying here is that even though God is going to turn out the lights and hand his people over to their enemies and oppressors he promises his people they're not going to live in that darkness forever. He promises that eventually he's going to turn the lights back on because in the Bible while God allows for the darkness he never allows the darkness to have the final say. Light always breaks through eventually. And so Isaiah, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Isaiah the prophet, you kind of don't like him. He's the angry preacher. You know, you're like, I wish it was the other guy. Whenever he's up, he's like yelling at us. And (laughs) Isaiah's telling the church, he's like, listen, you're all losing your homes. I mean, it'd be like him saying, hey, China's coming. You're going to be taken away. You're going to lose everything. You're never going to see your homes again. You're never going to see this continent again. You're gone. All of us. But that that darkness that's coming, it's not going to last forever. There's tremendous hope too. It's not going to last. And we actually know you can read, I think it's uh, 2 Kings 15. I might be wrong on that. Um, you can actually read about when this happened though. You can read that The the Assyrians came in during Isaiah's lifetime, and so he's like, yeah, it's coming, guys, but it's not going to have the final word. And so he starts this promise. It's like he's given this vision from God. He's like, the people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then in verse 3, Isaiah moves from speaking to God's people to actually speaking to God himself as if he's totally caught up in this vision of what God is going to do. He's, he's like crying out to God, you've actually enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. He's saying the day when God flips the lights back on, it's gonna be this day of laughter enjoy and celebration it's going to be like pirates after they capture you know the treasure chest and they open it up and they're throwing the gold in the air or like the people who've waited for 9 months and the harvest has finally come in and they know that they are taken care of it's going to be a party to end all parties and isaiah continues for as in the day of midian's defeat you've shattered the yoke that burdens them The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. In the Old Testament, when it talks about the yoke, you know, the beam that you'd put across the backs of beasts of burdens to drag a plow, it's always referred to or used as a reference to when God's people were brought into slavery. And Isaiah says God's going to come and he's going to shatter that yoke. They're not going to live as slaves to the Assyrians Forever. And he, he references the day of Midian's defeat. You can read about it in the book of Judges. But it's a time when God did some crazy things and delivered his people, and he showed that his deliverance comes by his grace, not by his people's effort. And so Isaiah has this vision, and then he continues. He says, Not only that, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. Any of you ever get a Christmas card with a passage from Isaiah 9 on it? Yeah? Anyone ever had this verse included there? It's where they always, you know, dot, 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 skip over. But it's actually a really wonder. I mean, it sounds really intense, but it's actually such a wonderful promise. The promise is that the warrior's boots, the, the uniforms of soldiers all that are stained in mud and blood because of the endless, endless violence that exists between humanity, the day is coming when you're going to take those off and never need to put them on again. Like the boots are going to be thrown. We don't need these anymore. We don't even need the memory of them anymore. Let's burn the uniforms, burn the boots, as Isaiah will say elsewhere. Let's take our swords and beat them into plowshares because we don't need them anymore. That's the promise. And he goes on. Well, think about it. If you're an Israelite, or even if you're not, it's like, man, that's anyone else like, ah, that's okay. Like, that's wonderful. Promises. Right? So if you're there and you're thinking, okay, bad times are coming. They're not gonna last forever, what what's gonna bring about this change of circumstances? What should we be looking for? And Isaiah says this the reason we're gonna be able to lay down our our swords and put an end to war, the the way you know that the lights are coming back on, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The dawning light is gonna be ushered in by a person, a child, a baby boy and he will be called and we're given these names wonderful counselor this doesn't mean that Jesus is a great therapist although I think he was and is well counselor in the Bible it's a word typically used in reference to war or politics it means he's a king he's a great ruler and political strategist we're also told he'll be called mighty God Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and peace in the Bible is not just absence of conflict, it's flourishing. It's people always having enough food to eat, living in harmony with their neighbors, with one another. And then Isaiah tells us in verse 7 of the greatness of Of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. See, the second element of biblical hope is actually knowing and claiming, clinging to the promises God has given us. The first element, we can be honest, like this world has got some serious problems. The second element, God has made promises though. Yes, there's darkness, he's promised light. Yes, there is violence and decay and discord and all that, but he's also promised a day of peace and hope and joy. Biblical hope is learning, this is the reality we live in, being honest, but also clinging to the fact that our God is good And that even when God brings judgment, it's always in service to a greater end. Don't miss that point. When God brings judgment, it's always, we read it in the Bible, whenever he brings judgment, it's always to some greater end. Judgment is never the end in and of itself. Because judgment and wrath, while they are true elements of God, they are not who God is at his core ever thought about that? The Bible tells us God is love. Right? Does the Bible ever say God is wrath? No. Because wrath is not an essential part of his identity like love is. Actually, if you fast forward in Isaiah to chapter 28, God's judgment and his wrath are described as his strange work, or his alien work. It's always a secondary work of God to advance a greater goal, his glory, the good of his people, the good of creation, whatever it means. But the promise here is that whatever the darkness in our world, in our lives, in our relationships, God is good and he's promised to never let the darkness win. Now, I think for a lot of us, when we think about hope, we just go superficial. Like, God made these promises and I need to believe them. And yeah, there's, it's like, it's just, it feels inauthentic, feels dishonest, a lot of Christian hope. But the Bible actually encourages us to this deep sense of hope where we're like, no, it's really horrible a lot of the times. And this world's filled with a lot of awful, awful things. And yet, God has made promises. And yet, we're not going to let the darkness that's in this earth totally, on this earth, totally distort how we see and think about God because God is good. And there's a whole lot of mystery to believe that God is good when we see so much darkness here. But that is the claim of the Scriptures. That is what we train our hopes in, that in the midst of the darkness, God is light. And not only that, He is for His people. I mean, do you believe God is for you? Paul says it. If you're in Christ, God is for you. A lot of times when we don't actually, we can't have these honest conversations, what happens is we start interpreting the darkness as just judgment against all of us or God just dismissing us. When the Bible, the claim is, no, no, he's for his people. It's interesting. I don't know if you noticed it. Isaiah, when he talks about the birth of Christ, he doesn't say... For a child will be born, does he? He doesn't say, and it's going to be a boy. What does he say? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That God in his grace even when we walk in a land of deep darkness. He's still for his people and for their good. Martin Luther once said that the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. And some of you live feeling like if God really knew, which he does, he knows. But if God really knew, man, he would... He'd be so mad or he's out to get... No, the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. And the hope that we see in the Bible, the hope that we're called to cultivate in our life is not interpreting God's feelings or affections for us through the context of what we're going through in life. Instead, to claim the truth that God moved heaven and earth to draw near to us, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, and that he's demonstrated through his life, death, and resurrection that he's for us as his people. So hope is honesty about the darkness, but it's also clinging to the promises in spite of what might be going on around us. Now the question is, how do we do that well? It's one thing for me to preach about it. It's another thing to go and live as those kinds of people. It's one thing for us to be able to say, yeah, the world's filled with darkness and God's good. It's another thing when you are inundated with the darkness to cling to the promises and hope. How do we hold these two truths which sit in tension with one another in such a way that we can actually lead lives of love and peace? I'll give you two two encouragements, and then I'll be done. One, I think the way we can hold the tension of the darkness and light is that we consider Jesus himself. You know, Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, he lived in obscurity. What was Jesus' first act, you know? Before any of the miracles, before anything else, what was the very beginning of his ministry? His baptism right? And what did God say to him, the father say to Jesus, announce at his baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Had to be a great day for Jesus. What's the very next thing that happens? He's driven into the wilderness. He has a great afternoon hears the father's voice and then driven into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted and tried by Satan. Great light, a lot of darkness. He comes out of the wilderness as he passes the test in there and we're told that as soon as he returns he learns that John who baptized him, his cousin, his bro, John is now in prison. He's not going to see him again. And then in Matthew 4, Matthew, to help us make sense of this, this darkness and light, he says, Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does that sound familiar? We just saw those names, right? To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus begins his ministry at the very place, in the very region where the Assyrians came and took all of the Israelites captive. That's where he starts it. Darkness and light. And we're told right after that, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when Jesus says repent, if you have the baggage I have, I hear repent, it's like, feel horrible about being a human being. It's not what repent in the Bible means. Better translation for us might actually just be stop. When Jesus says repent, he's saying, stop, whatever you're doing, stop because what i have to say is so important it's going to change how you understand this world god life itself when jesus says the kingdom of god is at hand he's saying the lights are coming back on and yet I mean, in a sense, he, they, they did, right? I mean, think about right after this, what's Jesus do? He starts healing people. He's, he's undoing works of darkness. He's casting out demons. He's undoing the work of darkness. He actually raises people from the dead. He undoes works of the darkness. He goes to the cross and takes our sins, shattering the yoke of it. He's piercing the darkness with his light. He brought peace with God, joy to the world. But did he fulfill all the promises that were told he was going to fulfill in Isaiah 9. No one wants to say no, do they? But he didn't. Wars still rage. Blood is still spilled. Darkness still envelops us. You see, the good news of Advent is that God has drawn near. But the hard news of Advent is that his work isn't finished. Christ has come, and he's coming again. And the encouragement we're given is that Jesus, as we try to live in this in-between, he sympathizes with us. You ever thought about that? Like Jesus knows what you're going through? That's what the author of Hebrews says. Some of you have this image of God that he's distant and angry or judgmental. And what we're told in the scriptures is it's like, oh, you're feeling alone? Jesus is like, I get it. I know what it's like to be alone. My hardest, worst night ever, my friends are falling asleep. Oh, you feel betrayed by people? Yeah, I know what that's like. One of my best friends sold me out to the Romans. You feel tired? I know what it's like to be tired. Everything we've gone through, He's gone through. And part of how we wait well is we recognize He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's also our great... He's not just our great Savior, He's our great sympathizer. And so waiting between, waiting for the lights to come fully back on, we need to consider Jesus. And then lastly, the other thing that we need is We've just got to create space in our minds for God to be God. And what I mean by that is God is not like us. God is very, very different than us. He does things in different ways than we would. He moves at a different speed. He's not just like a bigger version of us, like the extra large version of human beings. He's different. Put yourself once again in the Israelite shoes. Isaiah's making this prophecy it's going to get dark, but the lights are going to come back on. The Assyrians show up, they drag you away, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so dark. But you're a person of profound faith in God, and you're like, yeah, but the lights are coming back on. This isn't going to last forever. Then you get older, your kids have grandkids in captivity. You've got your grandkids sitting on your knee. You're like, I know it's bad. I know that we're oppressed by these. But here's the promises God has made to us. You hold on to those promises and then you die. And then that kid that was on your knee, they grow up and their grandkids sit on their knee and they're like, I know it's dark, but let me tell you about the promises of God. Do you know how long it took for God to come through on this promise? It was seven hundred years. Seven hundred years. The lights are going to come back on. He didn't say it's not going to be in your lifetime because God doesn't always tell us. You see, biblical hope—it's waiting in faithfulness and allowing God to be God, recognizing He moves at His own pace. He rarely acts as we think he should act. Jesus was the promised king. Why did God's people get so enraged with Jesus? Because he wouldn't pick up a sword. Remember? I love that scene when the disciples are like, hey, you want us to call down fire and just burn them to the ground? Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Of course not. Peter and the Romans come. Jesus says, put away the sword. For so many people, it was like, no, 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 we want a king who's coming with a sword and power and might. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go die. Because God, he's just different than us. And that's actually good news. Because if Jesus came with might and power, he could have wiped out his enemies with the snap of a finger. But that would have included wiping all of us out as well. And so he came as a child. Not because he wanted to damn us or just conquer us, but because he wanted to save us. And God is different than us, and it's such good news. Think about it. When God said, I'm going to show up in the flesh, in the world, how am I going to do it? I'm going to come as the most innocent, non threatening, in the most innocent, non threatening form ever imagined. I'm going to come as a baby. Why does he do that? To show us that as we wait and hope, we can approach him. We can draw near to him. We can go to him in prayer, not being afraid, because we know that the incarnation is proof that God is not against us. As we come to the Lord's table, you know, I've seen, I think, pretty much every church that I know, and the national stats bear this out. Most churches have lost about a third of their people in the last two years. Every church, every, I haven't met a pastor who's like, man, our church is just amazing right now. Everyone's like, man, it's just hard and different. That in this season of shaking, it's like there are people who were sitting by you six months ago you don't see anymore. There are people, I don't know if this happens to you, it happens to me. My wife and I will be talking and I'll be like, hey, whatever happened to, So I don't know. The, the trials of the last few years, it's done a lot. and I'm not saying a third of people have walked away from Jesus. I don't, I don't know. But what I do know is when you read the Old Testament, when hard times come, people of God scatter, and yet there is this great, there, there's always this remnant in the Bible that's celebrated. There's always a remnant who's saying, yeah... Fifty years ago in America, maybe it was easy and fun to be a Christian, and right now it's not so easy, fun, and it's actually going to... It's hard, and it's probably going to get harder to be faithful to Jesus in the next 10 years, 20 years. But there's a promise of a remnant of people who willingly take that on in obedience to the Lord. And one of the things that encourages me, and I hope it encourages you is as we seek to walk in faithfulness, knowing, man, there's, there's, there might be a lot of darkness ahead for us as a church, is knowing that Christ is with us. And that on the, the night of his greatest betrayal, he also gave the greatest demonstration of his love when he sat down with his disciples, took a loaf of bread, and he explained what was going to happen even though they didn't understand it. He said, this, is, this, this loaf of bread is like my body, and it's going to be broken for you. And this is my blood that's going to be shed for you, for your sins, so that you could be reconciled to me. And then he told us, he said, do this as often as you gather as a meal of remembering what I've done and anticipating what I've promised to do at the end of the age. And so this meal is part of us learning to wait and wait well, trusting that even though the world's filled with darkness, God has made great and tremendous promises, and we can cling to those promises. So I'm going to pray. If you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper. We have bread, wine, and juice. We also have little cups, uh, prepackaged communion if you want up front. But this is a time for us, maybe for you, it's to, to pray and confess. Or just be honest with God about the darkness you're feeling. Like It's a hard time and you've been trying to act like it's not. Or maybe for you, it's you live in that place, and you're a cynic, and you're beat down, and you're discouraged most of the time. Maybe this is a time to cry out to God and say, make your promises real to me. I don't want to live letting my circumstances dictate my outlook and my hope. Whatever it is, I encourage you to take it to the Lord and ask Him to bring hope and healing. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how honest it is. I pray for people here this morning who are really suffering, who you, you feel very far, far away from, who whose faith has grown cold or maybe dark. I pray, Lord, that you would visit them in grace, with a fresh act of your mercy, of your kindness. I pray for people here who are suffering tremendously, that you would give them great comfort and draw them to you in prayer, knowing that you can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And Lord, I pray for us as your people that in uncertain times, I pray, Lord, you would deepen our faith And I pray that we would truly not just survive right now, but we could actually go in a time when people are freaking out and everyone's kind of going crazy, Lord, that we could be light in the darkness. We could be salt of the earth. We could be a city on a hill that offers hope, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless this church and use them in mighty ways as you push back darkness here in Middletown and beyond. We ask this in Christ's name.